0: Coffee Hour podcast, feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod. You can email us at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And we're glad that you're tuning in with us today. Um, we're going to be talking about some listener feedback that we got um, on our second episode. We're going to be talking about Ted Cruz's white masculinity issues. And then we have an interview with Allison Turcos from the New York Abortion Access Fund. So let's get
1: started. Karen, what's going on? So, uh, I wanted to respond to one of our listeners who commented, uh, on the Political Flavors website. Lacey Liu writes that, uh, after listening to our episode, Malala versus Kylie, that she felt that we were too generous to Kylie Jenner in discussing her plastic surgery. And, uh, I think she kind of targets the choice feminism that we were talking about in episode five in that, uh, in choosing to have plastic surgery, that Kylie has not made a feminist choice. And so uh, her two uh, points to this was, uh, number one, Kylie has observed that she was always self-conscious about her lips and that this change made her happy. Uh, and Lacey states that this perfectly encapsulates the problems faced by young girls today, and I feel badly that Kylie was under such pressure as a young woman that she felt as though she needed to make a physical change to be happy. And the second point she makes, uh, the second point Lacey makes, is she's doing nothing to help women who live in a society that tells them if you, are, if you have an ugly uh, insert body part here, we value you less. So to speak to those points, uh, which I think are really useful points in the discussion of plastic surgery, and I do think it's kind of worthwhile to bring up that plastic surgery does not exist in a vacuum of patriarchy. And of course, like we we discussed, personal empowerment is not necessarily a feminist choice. So it does seem that Kylie has had some sort of self-consciousness in the way that she talks to the public. She seems to make it a very personal self-consciousness about her happiness, But I think it might also be worthwhile to mention that her physical beauty is her financial source of income. In that in order to be successful in her field, she very likely, and I don't know if this is her motivation or if I'm projecting this onto her, but I do think that when we're discussing the factors that go into her choice, if she is trying to look like a beauty standard, is her job to counter the beauty standard and then not be considered for certain jobs... Or is it to conform to the beauty standard and continue her career? And so I think that that's a double bind that many aspiring models may find themselves in, even if Kylie herself may not have had to consider this in her decision. I don't know her personally, and uh, I, again, feel very uncomfortable to be in a position to defend Kylie Jenner, who I really have no deep love or respect for, Uh, but in terms of uh, the feminist debate around her choices. I wonder if we scrutinize her choice as a woman living under patriarchy more than why does our society have these beauty standards that we then require from women in order to allow them to represent us visually in our print media. To the next point that she's not doing anything to help women who live in a society that tells them if you have an ugly and insert body part here we value you less. This is, I guess, speaking to the belief that because she underwent plastic surgery, that she is telling women that in order to have value, you have to change this part of yourself. And uh, I don't really know if her getting surgery necessarily reinforces that belief directly. I can see that it does indirectly. Not necessarily her saying uh, you have to change certain things about yourself in order to have value in society, I don't think she's the person who's creating the value again. And so I think that it's a, that she's a player in a game of patriarchy. And uh, I think it was uh, Anita Sarkeesian who said, (laughs) and I I think she pulled it from somewhere else, actually, (laughs) that uh, in the game of patriarchy, women are not the opposing team, they're the ball. (laughs) And I will never lose that. I think that Kylie Jenner in this situation is the ball in the game of beauty standards and so while I do agree her choices don't seem particularly feminist to me I don't commend plastic surgery but I also do not condemn plastic surgery because I think that it's just the other side of over scrutinizing women's behavior and uh, I want to be really careful not to do that and so I actually uh, I tend to disagree as much as uh, I'm really grateful for these points and I do think that it is worth exploring what it does say about somebody when they have plastic surgery. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's nice to let these people speak for themselves.
0: I think that's really, I think that's really interesting, Karen. I always like your analysis on these things, and I just wanted to add two things. One, I actually disagree with Lazy in that I'm more upset about the Ferrari as someone who's really <laughs> concerned about climate change. Um, you know, why didn't buy a hybrid and make everyone excited about that? They have hybrid luxury cars. Not, not many, but a few. Um, that would have been a good role model thing. If we're looking to a, isn't she just 19 or 18? Yeah. A, a young, young, young woman to be a role model. She should have bought a hybrid. But I'm kind of kidding on the square when I say that.
1: She's a fashion model, not a and, role model.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is that I think that uh, plastic surgery is a feminist issue, but I'm more comfortable discussing it in the general than in the specific. I, and and we may do this in the future, talk about pressures on women to get plastic surgery or body modifications in the aggregate, I think is more important to talk about. And we can talk about how does Kylie Jenner contribute to this specifically, but I I don't want to, you know, come down so hard on on a younger woman for doing that for reasons that we discussed in the other show. And maybe this is something to talk about more, but kind of, if you're going to say that it's not feminist to, to get plastic surgery on a of, part of your body that you don't like, where do we draw the line? Is plastic surgery a difference in degree or of kind from makeup, which we talk about a different issue? You know, if you're if you have an uneven skin tone or acne and you cover that with makeup, is that not feminist? I don't know, but if I have something on my face that I don't like, I'm going to cover it with makeup and I'm going to feel better. If that's not feminist, that's okay. I have competing values, and I'd you know, rather have the confidence to go out and fight patriarchy with a little bit of cover-up than to be self-conscious, and maybe you know if that affects my voice or, or my actions. I'm sorry to the goddesses of feminism, if that's <laughs> offending you. But um, I, I would be interested in discussing this on, on a further episode about pressures on women to do something as dangerous as plastic surgery, because... Well, I have written on my blog a lot about carcinogens and makeup. Plastic surgery is is far more dangerous if you're getting general anesthesia than than applying makeup would be.
1: Yes, general anesthesia tends to be a very dangerous uh, thing to undergo in general.
0: No pun intended. So, what has been on your mind, Elizabeth? So, this was something that kind of caught my eye watching the insanity that is the Republican primary in our country right now in America. And that was Bootgate, which was when a bunch of people were very (laughs) upset at Marco Rubio for wearing a pair of fashionable boots. And I I didn't see the issue here. I thought that it was kind of... um, Are you laughing? I thought that that it was kind of... One, it it shows our weird masculinity issues, and I saw it as kind of a racialized thing. Because just in my experiences... As a woman of some Latina heritage in the New York City area, I do see that men who are Latino have a different idea of style and masculinity than men who are Anglo or men who are wasps. And it's different if you're, you know, black or white or Jewish or, and, you know, what kind of white person you are, Italian versus, you know, more Anglo. And I think that that's an interesting thing to discuss. And then I looked into it further and I found out that the attacks on Marco Rubio's boots came from Ted Cruz, who is also Cuban. And I thought, what the hell is that about? <laughs> so Then I looked into that and Ted Cruz turned around and attacked Marco Rubio's masculinity right after Donald Trump started race baiting Ted Cruz. So, Ted, uh, Donald Trump has been going around saying, I've never heard of an evangelical that's named Cruz or how many evangelicals come out of Cuba. And then he even questioned whether or not Ted Cruz can, is, a, is a citizen. And I strongly believe that if Ted Cruz's parents were, say, 100% French-Canadian or, or something like that, that this would not have come up. I think that even though Ted Cruz generally passes as white, um, I think that this is a, a racial attack. And I think that Donald Trump is going after him. For his Latino heritage. And I think that one way that Ted Cruz responded was to turn the attack around on Marco Rubio and his performance of, in my opinion, a more like Latino masculinity wearing nice boots. So I thought that that was really interesting. I thought it was really strange that nobody was talking about it on that axis. But, you know, we see Donald Trump being racist to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz t- <laughs> turns around and says, I can perform white masculinity. It's Marco Rubio who can't. Look at his stupid boots. So it's, it's a circus, and there's, there's issues here and intersections that uh, there's, there's a lot to write about. I feel like I could write a paper about the semiotics of Marco, Marco Rubio's boots. But um, I'll just leave it to this brief podcasting.
1: And ultimately, it raises the question, should men be allowed to run for office? <laughs> you know,
0: we should have asked Rebecca Lynch that. Oh, we should have. <laughs> you guys, will, you're in for a really great interview today with Allison Turkus. Oh, she's We amazing. will be interviewing Alice. Uh, you will hear our interview with Rebecca Lynch in the future, and we did not ask her if men should be allowed to run for office, and we really should have. Maybe we'll get her on a phone call and <laughs> ask her later. <laughs> Our guest today is Allison Turcos, who is the co-chair of the New York Abortion Access Fund. Welcome to Fem- Feminist Coffee Hour, Allison. Hi,
1: thanks so much for having me. Welcome, we're really grateful you were able to make it up today. So the first question we want to ask is, what is an abortion access fund?
2: That is a great question and a great umbrella question. Um, so we call ourselves NIAF, and that stands for the New York Abortion Access Fund. And so. We are a part of an umbrella organization called the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, and the mission, and I'll speak to NIAF um, spe- you know, specifically, um, the mission of the New York Abortion Access Fund is that we support anyone who is unable to pay fully for the cost of their abortion. Um, and we support anyone who is living in or traveling to New York State by providing financial assistance and connections to other resources. And so I'm just going to kind of set up a scenario here. Um, let's say, hypothetically, I am someone who is living in New York State and I have health insurance, but and I find out that I'm pregnant and I do not desire to carry this pregnancy to term. Um, I call a clinic that provides abortion care um, and you know they run my insurance and they say, oh, your insurance actually does not cover abortion care, so you'll have to pay out of pocket. Um, I might think that an abortion might cost $200 hypothetically. Um, I ask the clinic and they tell me I'm seven weeks, an abortion will be $575. Um, at this stage, at this moment in my life, I am unable to pay that out-of-pocket and you know I let the clinic know. They would then say there's a great organization that can help you pay for it The client would then call us um, we would do some financial counseling with them And then we bridge the gap between how much the client is able to pay and then what the cost of the abortion is um, So yeah, that's what an abortion fund is
0: Wow, that's that's really great and full disclosure Karen and I are both supporters of your organization and We have Thank been you. for years so it's really great to uh, to get to meet you and to talk about your work. How did you get involved in NIAF?
2: I have been involved with the New York Abortion Access Fund since 2010. I found out about it through Facebook. So thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, I guess. <laughs> I randomly saw that they were looking for volunteers for an event that they were organizing, and I had just moved to the city. And I was a baby feminist at the time and wanted to meet other like-minded folks. And so contacted them, uh, helped to work the door, and uh, like was checking people in and selling tickets and what have you and then at that point in time I was working at a very large uh, national abortion rights organization and was doing development work there and was recruited to join the board of NIAF because they needed some help fundraising and I joined the board in August of 2011 and I became co-chair I believe approximately about maybe two and a half years
0: ago. It's really interesting. So, where does the funding come from from NIF? where does the money come from to help people pay for abortions? Yeah, so a lot of people think that we might get foundational
2: funding or, you know, we might get funding from, I guess people probably don't assume that we get funding from the government, but funding comes from folks like you and Karen. Funding comes from, you know, someone like me. Uh, I'm a monthly donor to NIF. I give Niaf $10 a month. It, it comes completely from individuals, like the three of us in this room. We do not receive any sort of foundational support. We have uh, some pretty large institutional events that happen every single year. You know, this podcast is currently being uh, recorded in December and so it's our end of the year appeal right now and we're trying to raise $50,000. Um, each April we have our bowl which last year we raised about $127,000 thanks again to folks like you and Karen um, and then throughout the year you know we have sustaining donors who give you know if uh, you know they give them every month or you know we do some small bar events and things like that um, but it's literally just people who listen you know my parents give a gift you know at the end of the year and things like that it's folks who give $10 randomly when we might send out an e-appeal or have some sort of an urgent case, but it's just people like me and you.
0: So you mentioned Bolathon. What is that coming up, in case people don't know?
2: Yeah, so the Bolathon is this... I think it's so beautiful because it's just the space where approximately about 300 people who are just badass abortion funders get in a room and they bowl to break down barriers to abortion. So basically what happens is that uh, myself and a few what we call ourselves the Bolathon Planning Committee. We've already started to get our committee together. So it happens, uh, it will happen on April 17th in 2016. And y'all will be getting a lot of emails from me to tell you to, to join. So basically everyone signs up and you join a team or you captain a team on your own. And um, you, so let's say like you and Karen and Birdie, who's, you know, a beautiful cat here, um, y'all, could, y'all could be on a team and, you know, you name your team and sometimes teams have really, you know, last year we had a lot of like Beyonce abortion, you know, joke-themed teams. Um, what, is, what have
0: your team's name at, been? At Your Cervix, mm. the Lucky Flukes after, uh, no, Lucky Flux after Sandra Fluck. Right. And was okay. um, <laughs> the first one?
1: Oh, I don't
0: even remember. It was... It was uh, right. Oh no no, no. Sparrows Your Boehner. Oh, Sparrows Your Boehner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: so yes, they're always incredible. <laughs> they're always incredible. You know, very witty uh, team names. Um, and y- we ask. So once you sign up to Bull, you then reach out to your networks and you tell them why you love and admire and are passionate about the work of Niaf. And you might ask your coworker, your best friend, your best friend's mom, your you know childhood caregiver what have you to kind of kick in some money to go to NIAF. and again it you know all comes from your personal networks we raise a ton of money we ran out last year we rented out um, the bowling alley at Chelsea Piers there were about 250 people there to the point where I think that we might have to have it at multiple locations this year because it's so big wow. which is so beautiful awesome. right it's so great that there's so many people and it's just a room full of people who it gives me the chills because it's so beautiful it's a room full of people who want to break down barriers to abortion access, who feel passionate about the work of NIF, who know that every dollar that is given to NIF is then literally most likely spent almost that same week and is directly given, you know, to a clinic on behalf of the clients that we serve. And they know, you know, like our operation our, our our operating expenses are incredibly low. We have no paid staff. We don't have an office. Um, you know, all of our letterhead and envelopes are currently sitting in a room in my apartment, you know, so uh, <laughs> It's just funded, you know, all the funding goes to our intake line. And so it's great to have people celebrating and, you know, some people dress up and we, you know, give away raffle prizes and, you know, we eat, drink and fund abortion. So the Bullathon
0: is great. It is great. Yeah, um, it's super fun. <laughs> yeah. What, what I like about Bullathon is that fundraising, for me personally, is one of the easiest forms of making a difference. I don't even know if, I personally would call it activism. Some people are like, oh, we're an activist. But um, fundraising is... For me, anyway, because I like to talk to people and I can do it with social media. But then I also actually have to do other things, like plan pizza parties and bake cookies, and you know, think of other ways to ask people to give me their money for abortions. Um, and I think that's a really great set stepping stone to get people involved in uh, reproductive justice and uh, and feminism issues. One of the uh, slogans for Bolathon is "Strike Hide Nationwide." Can you talk a little bit about the Hyde Amendment and, and, and why people who are interested in Bolathon and abortion funds would want to do that? Sure. The Hyde Amendment is one of, I think, or maybe the least favorite thing in the
2: entire world for me. Um, the Hyde Amendment is something, it is an amendment that was passed in 1976, and it bars all federal funding to be used for abortion care. Um, and where that specifically comes into play is in terms of Medicaid funding. Um, and so, federally, what the Hyde Amendment basically states in kind of layman terms is that no Medicaid funding can is able to be used to fund an abortion. And so if you are a low-income person who receives uh, their insurance through the Medicaid program, which is the federal insurance program, and in, in if you are seeking abortion care, then the federal government says, nope, sorry, we can't pay for it. You currently have approximately about 17 states who voluntarily and or by court order use their state funding to allow Medicaid dollars to cover abortion care. New York state is one of them. Um, And I say approximately 17 because there are two states who aren't really doing it. And I have some besties who work at the Center for Reproductive Rights who would be much more able to know those states and what states are doing, what have you. And so the Hyde Amendment is named after this gentleman named Henry Hyde, and I'm unsure of the exact quote, but it basically was just the idea of he never wanted anyone to be able to access abortion care, predominantly low-income people. And so there's a lot of intersections there in terms of the multiple systems that are working against people predominantly low-income people and people of color and so where abortion funds really come into play there is the idea of you know you look at states you know a lot of states predominantly in the south but also even in the, in the north where someone might be on medicaid and they might assume okay i have health insurance and my health insurance is going to cover you know i'm going to the doctor like that's what having an abortion is oftentimes it's you know a routine medical visit um, and they assume that their health insurance is going to cover it, and then when they find out, oh, in this state actually Medicaid isn't—we are no, Medicaid doesn't cover abortion care—and uh, then they would call it an, an abortion fund. Um, and so you know, it's another like witty, you know, bowling pun, you know, strike hide, oftentimes it's like strike hide spare choice, but a lot of abortion funds and the repro movement is kind of moving away from the choice uh, framework. Um, And so one of the things, there's a lot of great campaigns. I'm thinking predominantly of the all above all campaign that is really putting in the work to repeal the Hyde Amendment. Um, And the one thing that I also do want to highlight is that the Hyde amendment is tacked on to an appropriations bill and so it's not the quote-unquote law of the land which i think is really important to to remember is that it's not something that it's something that is enacted every single year so every single year when we vote on the budget it is something that is tacked on since 1976 and each year we have you know the president has the opportunity to repeal that and to take that out but every
0: single year it's still there I thought that was really interesting what you were talking about, about how Hyde wanted to deny everyone access to abortion, but he could only do it for poor people. And that's that's a discussion that I've had while asking people to uh, give to abortion funds. Somebody would say to me, well, I already give to Planned Parenthood. Or, well, you know, why don't you just work on it politically or something like that? But to me... What I like about giving money to abortion funds is that you're helping someone who needs help right now, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things. This is a little bit off topic, and if you don't want to answer the question, we'll cut it out. <laughs> Do you want to talk? A little, I know we talked about this before, and I'm not sure if you did want to talk about it or not, but about moving away from the term "pro-choice." What's your thoughts about that? Because Karen and I were talking about it, and Cecile Richards made a statement about this last year, and I just. Don't get it. I mean, I understand what reproductive justice is, and the way I thought was reproductive uh, was that choice is one little piece of reproductive justice. But if we're getting away from choice, is that a semantic thing? What? Why? Why would people do that? Yeah. Last
2: summer, I think Rebecca Traister wrote a piece for the New Republic that um, I coincidentally was also quoted in about this particular topic, and I'm going to requote myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it was basically similar to what you had said, is the idea of like when I hear choice, I hear oftentimes we just hear the word abortion there. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's just the coming mainly from a a very kind of like first wave, second wave where like we were fighting for choice and predominantly that meant that we were fighting for access to abortion, Mm -hmm. and I think that as someone who really strives to be an intersectional feminist, I think it's important that we not just, abortion access is vital, a hundred percent, but it's important that we also strive for access to comprehensive sex education, that we fight for access to Contraceptive care that we fight for access to, you know, folks who de- who do desire to parent, um, you know, that we fight for access to, you know, adoption services and the idea of, you know, for folks who maybe, you know, if they're struggling with infertility, um, that is. Super fucking expensive, and oftentimes it's not covered by insurance. And so, like, how are we ensuring equal access to that as well? Um, and then I think it's also the idea of you know, like, destigmatizing folks. You know, younger folks who maybe desire to parent. Um, you know, there's a lot of shame and stigma around teen pregnancy, and you know, folks who at a younger age want to bring a child into the world. And it's the idea of you know, then that there's a lot of stigma around IUDs and younger folks, and and I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done there and so i i think when i was again like a baby feminist i definitely was using the word choice and i was mm-hmm. very like pro choice and proud mm-hmm. um and now i i personally also have really moved away from that mm-hmm. and it's just the idea of um i believe that if someone desires to seek abortion care i want to support them in that mm-hmm. if they also desire to continue a pregnancy to term it's important that they have access to all of the medical services that they need, and that they are able to bring that child into a safe and healthy world and community, and that they are able to, you know, raise that child with dignity and respect and justice, and that's really important. And I think that oftentimes that's not included in
0: choice. That's very interesting to me. Um, I think I get it. Um, does this make sense? Um, rather than you know saying that choice is just a, a part of the puzzle, it's more like when you use that term you're kind of centering a kind of a narrow discussion on abortion that and in doing so you're kind of limiting the conversation. I, I would yes, I'd
2: say that you're definitely limiting the conversation. And I think also for the for so long the pro-choice movement, and I think this still to this day, was very much fronted and led by White, well-educated cisgendered women, mm-hmm. and the you know, and oftentimes specifically now with you know with what we're seeing happen in Texas is the idea of you know as and I think across the country as you see abortion access getting rolled back and more um, restrictions being passed and implemented is that if you are a low-income person, uh, you know, or undocumented or what have you, y- you will basically not be able to access an abortion if you are a you know, well-educated, insured, uh, wealthy, privileged person, you can, you know, rent a car and drive to New York. You can hop on a plane and go to the UK, you know, like, and so it's the idea of, you know, abortion will be very inaccessible for a large population, but it will always be accessible for, you know, a certain, and I think that's also something that when when I hear choice is the idea of like, whose choice are you actually fighting for? And I think that we're not fighting for this, you know, we're not fighting the same fight here, and we're not talking about the same
0: populations and the same communities. So, um, something you said that was interesting, and I wasn't even sure of this myself, was about the New York Abortion Access Fund being for all of New York State. Mm -hmm. So, um, I I guess that means that you do work in upstate and in other populations like the Southern Tier, Mm -hmm. or... Capital District, even up by Buffalo, Watertown, you know, those kind of areas where, I mean, people think of of New York City, which is, you know, where where a lot of the events are centered, but that's good to know that the funds are going to places where there's also maybe poverty and lack of access.
2: Yeah. So um, we are the only abortion fund in the entire state of New York, and so we serve New York State. And we serve New York State residents who are seeking care within their home state. And then we also serve people who are traveling from their home state to come seek care in New York State. And so I know that we were talking about northeastern Pennsylvania prior to um, when we hit record. We serve a very large amount of people who are coming from northeastern Pennsylvania and who are being seen um, in like the Binghamton area because mm-hmm. there's a great clinic that we partner with up there. Um, and so we serve a large community community who leave the northeastern Pennsylvania area who have Medicaid. Pennsylvania state Medicaid does not cover abortion care. They travel to New York to have their abortion, um, and so they're taking time off work. They need to f- pay for childcare or find childcare. They're paying for gas or some sort of transportation. They're getting to the clinic, and then we're pledging you know, anywhere between $50 to $430. Um, and so, you know, we're serving those folks. And then also, um, we also work with New York State residents who, because of the gestational limit in New York State, which um, is about 24 weeks, who need to leave the state to seek later term care or to seek third trimester care in either Colorado, uh, Maryland, or in New Mexico. And so we also fund them. So you have some f- abortion funds, and I think predominantly like in Texas, like the Texas Equal Access Fund, the T-Fund, works mainly with North, uh, northern Texas clients where um, in New York, the our eligible our, like clientele eligibility is very we cast a very wide net.
0: That's interesting. I mean, I knew this, but just for people listening, there's other abortion funds throughout the United States. Mm-hmm.
2: There are approximately, I would say, and you can double check this. I would say probably between seventy-five to eighty-five active abortion funds, both in the United States. Um, there's a very active fund in Mexico City, and then my friend Mara runs um, the abortion fund that is. In the UK, that helps people leave Ireland to come to the to travel to the UK to seek abortion
1: care as well. Wow, so not know. Where is the the farthest away person that NIAF has helped in recent history?
2: Yeah, I would say that's a great question. Uh, in the past uh, three months, we've helped someone from Japan, um, and then since I've been on the organ since I've been on the board, we've helped someone from Bermuda. We've helped someone from France uh, we have funded folks from uh, you know and in, in terms of folks who have had to leave their home state um, we have we helped a student from Florida who was like coming home for uh, a holiday break um, and I think that we funded some some folks from Colorado but in terms of I think Japan which was literally less than three weeks ago um, and they got on a plane and they were they they were able to afford their plane ticket, but they were unable to afford the cost of their abortion, and so we helped them with that.
1: So, would you say that access is kind of the the primary goal of reproductive justice work right now? Niaf seems to be on the the access side, where it's kind of maybe Planned Parenthood might be on the, the kind of legality side. Mm-hmm.
2: I would say, in terms of you know Niaf, I think. Um, sp- strives to uh, engage our work with a reproductive justice lens. We are not a reproductive justice organization. Um, we, uh, you know, are, are not engaging the clients that we serve and the clients that we serve are not um, then um reflected in the leadership of our organization. Right. Um, and so, and I think in terms of like the repro- the reproductive rights aspect, I think is very focused on access. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, you know, um, it's just, it's the idea of we are kind of, not that we're putting a bandaid on a very particular moment in this person's life, but it's important to us that the clients that we're serving lead self-determined lives mm-hmm. and that they are coming to us at a moment when they you know are making the best decision that they possibly can for them and at that time it is the idea of that they can you know for whatever reason they need to seek abortion care whether it is because of a fetal abnormality whether it is because they you know are a college student who does not desire to parent at this moment whether it is because they currently have six children and they are unable to financially afford another um, you know what have you we never ask our clients you know what brought you to the decision to have an abortion that's not what we're here for Um, But then I think in terms of like the more broader kind of RJ Reproductive Justice um, you know, forward movement of or forward motion of the movement um, I, you know, I have to be honest, I don't even know if I can answer that because I think that it's, you know I live in New York and I live in a state that, you know, has ample funding you know, for us and for the work and I think of organizations like Sister Song in Atlanta, Georgia and Sister Reach in um, I think they're in West Virginia and Um, you know just like really badass women of color led organizations that are just doing phenomenal work and I would love to you know hear from them what where they think that 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 it's going
1: so would you say that abortion funds are kind of filling a a gap that's been created by our legal system oh yeah Uh, yes and I think it's also the idea
2: for the longest time I think you know, people like the, the reason why NIAF was funded was because there were three um, students who were at Barnard and Columbia and they saw a person, they were escorting at a clinic um, uptown. They saw a person walk into the clinic and then leave in tears. And as an escort, they just walked up and checked in and were like, oh, you know, is everything okay? And the patient said, you know, I like I sonode, I had a sonogram and I sawed farther along and my abortion was more expensive than I thought and I don't have the money. And these three people were just like, what can we do? They had NIAF's first ever fundraiser in the basement of CBGBs and raised $500, which at that time in, and I guess, 1999 was, you know, much more than it is now in 2015. Um, and they gave the money to the clinic, and the clinic said, oh, like, you know, we only needed $100. And they basically said, like, no, just keep it for the next person. And then NIAF was founded. And so I think it's the idea of, you know, in terms of legality, yes. And I think it's also just we forget that people fall through the cracks and we forget that you know you might have $500 today to pay for your abortion because you think that you're seven weeks pregnant and then when you get to the clinic and you're actually 20 weeks pregnant and that has skyrocketed or you just started a new job and you're under the and you think that your health insurance kicks in but it actually doesn't kick in until six months after employment and then it's like the fuck am I going to afford this or your partner said that they were going to help you pay for half and then they don't show up today that you get to the clinic and how are you so there are all of these things that I think oftentimes you know folks who don't do this work and aren't on the ground you know don't always or if you've always been privileged and you've always had health insurance and you you know think about that so yeah
1: so are uh most of your clients clinic referrals or do people ever contact you directly
2: People contact us directly, um, I mean, in all of the ways. People via Google oftentimes. uh, We used to actually ask during our intake process how folks found out about us, um, and we're thinking about actually going back to that. Oftentimes it's literally, if you just Google like New York and abortion, we're one of those, our SEO, I guess, is really great. Um, And sometimes it is clinic referrals, but sometimes it's people who... um, from a friend, you know, like, sometimes people, folks will be like, oh, like, my friend used you or told me about you, um, and sometimes folks will reach out to us, like, we'll get a Facebook message every so often, um, folks might search, you know, and that, that's one of the reasons why, you know, like, we just, um, we just joined Instagram recently, and I keep saying that, like, I'm waiting for the day when we get an Instagram direct, direct message from someone, and I think that that's, you know, like, inter- it's so important to us that everyone is able to access abortion care it's also important to us that people are able to access us so like how you know we get twitter direct messages sometimes from people just being you know and sometimes it's the clients themselves that are reaching out sometimes it's a parent or a best friend or a social worker or a guidance counselor from school you know there's all you know all these different realms that people can find out about us so
1: So would you say that most people who are not clinics know about you from like word of mouth?
2: Word of, yeah, I would say word of mouth. And then again, you know, it's, there's a sense of, I think oftentimes, and I was just saying this to one of our hotline case managers, um, when folks call us, and I think this sometimes can get lost, you know, you find out that you are pregnant. And if you, if it is, you know, unplanned, unwanted, what have you, there is a sense of urgency of like, you know, I don't want to be pregnant right now. And one of the reasons why NIAF is so important to me, I have to my knowledge never been pregnant. Um, I do not desire to parent. I never desire to be pregnant. If I were to find out that I was pregnant right now, I w- would be so upset and I would want to be unpregnant as quickly as I possibly could. And so I think that's sometimes, oftentimes, where our clients are coming to us. And it's the idea of, you know, not only do they not desire to be pregnant, but, like, how the fuck am I going to pay for this as well? To the point where, like, they are literally picking up a phone and calling a random stranger and telling us very intimate and personal details about their lives and their financial situations. And we will never meet them. We don't know what they look like. I, you know, they don't know what we look like. And, you know, we're helping them pay for this procedure. And so um, it sometimes it's word of mouth, but it's also, you know, they're just opening up their laptops or they're on their phones, and they're literally just like, how much does an abortion cost in New York? Or, you know... Abortion, you know, abortion payment help or things like that. And I think that that's sometimes where they're then finding out about us, um, you know. And some people, you know, some people might listen to this podcast and then they might obe- overhear someone having, you know, a conversation in a coffee shop being like, you know, in tears or what have you, being like, I'm pregnant, I don't know what I'm going to do. And literally just be like, oh, I was listening to this great podcast and there are people who can help you. Like,
1: all five of our lessons. Right, I,
2: I mean. Average <laughs> <laughs> more than five. Right. <laughs> so it's just, and that's one of the reasons why is just, and I'm and, sorry, I feel like I'm taking up a lot of space and talking a lot. You're the um, you're supposed, supposed to. We're
1: interviewing. <laughs> you. Um, you can ask questions in the last
2: Um, But I think it's one of you know, when I mm-hmm. first found out about NIF, I was under 26 and I was insured through my parents. And then I was working at a national nonprofit and I had health insurance. But then I used to work at an abortion clinic as an abortion counselor and I was only making $14 an hour and I did not have health insurance. And I remember sitting at a board meeting and saying to my an board... abortion clinic didn't give you health
0: insurance. I know. Mm-hmm. and I People, just, <laughs> this is where we are. I don't know what to do about it. That's why I had Elsa on. But uh, oh my I God. know.
2: <laughs> so many things, so many problems to solve. But like sitting at an IF board meeting and saying to the board and literally saying, like, I am at a point in my life, like, if I... I also have an incredible community that if I needed help funding my abortion, I would be like, hey, Facebook community and like Twitter community, this is who I am on Venmo. Can you all Venmo me $5 to help me pay for my abortion? Like, I've got a pretty badass, beautiful community that can help me do that. If I did not, have, if I was not privileged to have that community, I would, at that point in time, would have had to be like, I'm co chair of this organization and I need you guys to help me fund my abortion. And so it's really important to me that we, you know, people's financial situations can change dramatically. And, you know, and we work with a lot of like freelancers who oftentimes will say, like, I can't enroll in Medicaid because I had this really great freelance job, and my income says this, and, you know, what have you, and, you know, I haven't been paid in, you know, six months, because oftentimes publications don't pay freelancers mm-hmm. on a timely manner, but,
0: yeah, they do not. <laughs> so Thank you so much, Ellison. Is there anything you wanted to add?
2: Um, I would only I do I guess want to ask you both questions is the deal of like <laughs> how did you find NIAF and or what is it that makes you want like want to support the organization and keeps you coming back to the every, like every year
0: I heard about it um, a few years ago when Amanda Marcott at Pentagon was on a team and she was fundraising through her blog I mean she writes for salon now but at the time she put something on, on her blog saying give me money to fund abortions that's weird. Who would do that? Why do you need to do that? And then, but then the more I thought about it, the, the more sense that it made as a, as a way of, of helping people directly who needed help. And I just thought about those people who were calling your hotline and how difficult that must be to ask for help when you're so vulnerable. And I thought, you know, I can ask my friends to help fund abortions because people need help paying for their abortions. And that's kind of how simple that it was for me. And and like I said, fundraising is an easy thing for me to do because it's easy for me to talk to people and ask them for money. So I don't mind. And I like, you know, planning fun things like pizza parties or baking cookies or dance parties or whatever. Maybe karaoke this year, we'll see. To, uh, yeah, exactly. It's a very serious subject. And it's a very difficult situation that we have in this country that people can... But we have such a high, you know, unwanted or unplanned pregnancy rate, and then on top of it, people can't pay for their abortions. But, you know, we can have a good time making money to help those people out. It's the, very, it's the least I can do. It's one of those things where it's the least I can do, it's one of the things why I do it.
1: So I can't remember exactly how I found out. It was likely either through, again, Pentagon or Elizabeth. You know, I'm kind of. Politically minded, I, I strongly believe that, that women should have, or any person should have the choice of their future and whether or not they want pregnancy in their life. So anyway, um, yeah, I think that people should have the option to uh, either continue in their pregnancy at their discretion, and it shouldn't be limited by their, their financial situation um, and, or whatever other factors currently limit people's agency in these situations, but um, it's really difficult for me to kind of separate between uh, helping the individual, and Elizabeth talked about this too, helping the individual who's in this current situation. Hugely meaningful, Mm -hmm. you know, for for me especially, um, to help an, an individual who's currently in a limited access situation. So... That's kind of why I'm really passionate about it. And also the bowl is so fun. And like Elizabeth said, like every year, the best way that we raise funds is through having a party Mm -hmm. where we charge a a door donation price. We have a raffle, you know, and like a bunch of awesome people get together and have fun. And we raise money for abortion access. And it's been very, it's been like the most successful way to fundraise. So I would recommend that if you're a listener doing fundraising, people love coming to a party, but people do not necessarily
0: love donating. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Or uh, my secret is be a member of a UU congregation with a bunch <laughs> of people who came of age before Roe. Mm. That's my secret.
1: <laughs>
0: not everyone can do that, but if you can, you'll raise a lot of money for abortion access.
2: And I think also one of the other things that I think is that I love about the ballathon is that asking people for money can be difficult a thousand percent but then when you have these conversations and then when you say like oh hey like awesome friends who we probably talk about politics all the time and you know what have you what we might not talk predominantly about abortion access or reproductive sexual and reproductive health care access and then you know they might share an abortion story with you or they might say oh i'm really passionate about this too or this you know really relates to something else that i'm passionate about or they might just say like wow i had no idea how fucked our system was or I had no idea that abortion funds w- were needed, or that the incredibly like crucial service that this that this organization is providing mm-hmm. was you know so needed. And maybe they are from you know Vermont and they're going to go home and give to their local abortion fund, or say like, hey, you know, maybe they're going to get a call from their parents and say like, oh, hey, like I'm g- I'm doing my end of the year you know gifting. Where should I do it this year? And then be like you know what? Let's see like what your local abortion fund is. Or I live in New York and I'd love for you to give to NIAF. You know, there's all of these these options and these things, and that's one of the reasons why, I, you know, a lot of my friends are always like, Lauren, you talk about I have so much. And I'm always like, someone could be a potential donor or someone could be a potential client. And that's one of the reasons. I just think that everyone, always, everywhere, should just know that we exist, and that's why. So,
1: yeah. Uh, also, the fundraising party is a really great place. Uh, I've definitely, the first year, so many of my friends came up to me after we kind of did our spiel. The... Um, Didn't understand that the Hyde Amendment Mm. barred federal funds from abortion access, and so abortion use, and so that was kind of a a really huge revelation Mm -hmm. for a lot of people who I think don't really understand that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, and so fundraising is also kind of a consciousness raising in ways. Exactly, gotta put the fun into fundraising. We do. Oh yeah. (laughs) Thanks.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for coming out. We'll see you at Volathon. You yes. will, I'll <laughs> see you in April, and I'll yeah. see you on the internet, I'm sure. Yeah, that's oh, true. Course.
0: Where can people follow you on the internet? Oh,
2: my social media branding is pretty on point, AKA it's all my first and last name. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Allison with one L, Allison Turcos, um, and I'm, you know, all the places. And um, if you are ever questioning whether or not you want to get an IUD, I live tweeted my IUD insertion earlier this year, And you can follow that at hashtag TurcosRUD.
0: You can follow me on Twitter at MissCherryPie. That's P-I like the number pie. And you can follow me on
1: Twitter as uh, Karen,
0: (laughs) U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. (laughs)
1: feminist coffee hour podcast theme song is making it hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.